a trailblazing artist, decade after decade since the 1950s when he worked then as a young art teacher in the far north under Gordon Tovey, Jim Allen was one of our most influential arts educators. In June of this year, Jim Allen passed away. He was just shy of 101. Uh, life behind him as rich as it was long. Jim's known for inspiring what has been termed post-object art in New Zealand. Think of performance, installation, light, sound, film, action, collaboration. He was, as the critic Winston Kernow once called him, Aotearoa's first contemporary artist, and he was still working as a performance artist aged in his 90s. And Jim Allen had a formative influence on another legend of experimentalism and education over the last six decades, and that is artist Phil Dadson. Allen first taught a young Dadson at Elam School of Fine Arts in Auckland back in the 60s, and on Saturday... November the 11th, Phil Dadson will perform a tribute to Jim Allen with other artists at the iconic Fortuna Chapel in Karori in Wellington, for which Allen created some remarkable works way back in 1961. Best known for the ensemble From Scratch, Dadson continues to have a prolific and collaborative career himself, moving across the media. His new book, Little Doomsdays, combines abstract paintings uh, with text by Naitahu writer Nick Lowe. And he's just released Orongo, Inner Listening, on Rattle Records. It sees Phil Dadson improvise with Rob Thorne on Tonga Poro. And we're going to hear a little bit now. This is Basalt Iho. <laughs> It's Basalt Eagle from Phil Dadson and Rob Thorne, uh, just off the released Oronga in a listening from Rattle Records. And uh, with us in the studio, Phil Dadson. Kia ora, Phil. Oh, kia ora. What Good to talk to you. <laughs> what are these sounds we're hearing? Ah. Can, you, can you break this down for us? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because it's, it's all beautiful, but, you know, it's not a guitar <laughs> and drums. No, it's not. Um, well, it's a combination of uh, Rob's... Um, Taongoport or instruments. I mean, one of his, uh, one of them is the this beautiful, um, very simple instrument actually that you just kind of you you stretch it on a string and it whirs, you know, and it ah. just it's a very um, it was a healing instrument actually, ah. um, and that's the one you can hear kind of up close, and then the background one is more one is, is from my instrument called the uh, the Gloop one string spring drum. It's a kind of multi voiced instrument. You oh, know can you tell thing? us about the Gloop? Look, we have to know more because it's got such a delightful name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's um, it's got a it's quite a long instrument. It's about a meter and a meter and a half long, um, oh. and it has a drum a drum head at one end with a spring attached to it to a uh, a resonator a resonating can at the other end, and and then it uh, has a string tension from the from the drum head through to the uh, to a you know kind of a tensioning pin at the other. Yeah, um, but it also has a flexible. A flexible shaft, so you can it, it, the the string runs between two shafts that you can actually you can modulate the the two strips if you like um, to bend the note, 
And as well as this, it has a what I call like an outrigger attached, which is a, a long arm that you can, I can change the tension on the string with, um, and that shifts the tension on the spring. Mm. So uh, if I'm activating the spring, you can get this kind of change in change in pitch and tonality with it. You know, mm. that's gorgeous. What, got, what can I hear now? There's some new sounds there. Can you hear those, Phil? Hearing there. Oh, oh yes. This is uh, this is a, a gliss flute. Um, <laughs> and this is a, a clear acrylic tube, basically with a, a rubber rubber balloon membranes on each end. That so when you blow into the main uh, flute hole, it um, I can sing into it and stuff like that, which which you can hear. Um, but I also put a um, a small seed in it, so I can flick it between the the two membranes, and you can change the pitch by putting your finger over the over the blowhole. Yeah. So it's got quite a, again, it's got quite a lot of voices, and you can kind of do a lot of stuff with it. Um, quite, and it's, has a beautiful unpredictability as well, nice. as well as producing nice harmonics. Yeah. Ah, well, <laughs> congratulations on the new album. You guys are performing um, Friday, November the tenth, um, in Wellington at Pyramid, Pyramid, Cl- yeah, Pyramid yeah. Club, a wonderful yeah. place. Um, yeah, it's kind of like again, this is taking us into Jim Allen territory, but it's kind of like these are sculptures. As well, and it's kind of like a performance. I mean, the whole thing, like from your From Scratch days, is that you know, there's there's drawings, there's dance, there's everything kind of comes together, right? It's it it is quite performative because it's. I mean, basically, you you create a lot of action to create the sound. So, by many of the the action is byproduct, you know, in a, in a way of uh, the production of the sound. Um, I mean, the emphasis I think on both our instruments. You know, Rob is a, a brilliant tango or player. Mm. Um, you know, both both of us, or I think any most musicians, kind of do their best to activate the potential of the instrument. You know, mm. um, the best of it. And uh, these instruments I have, which are kind of made and stuff, they they have a lot of voices. And you you know, the aim really is just to kind of put yourself in the background a bit and bring out the voices of the the potential of the instrument. And they really talk. You know, yeah. it's like the song stones. Um, you know, they have a they have a lovely vocal chattering well you say song stones I remember first seeing you doing song stones at Art Space in the early 90s in Auckland oh, right. and I was yeah, totally was... bewitched so you've been you've been you know placing two stones together and, and telling their <laughs> stories for a very long time uh, yeah I have it's true I have a, a collection of hundreds of these things in drawers you know it's ridiculous in a way I, at some stage I'm going to have to set up a performance and just give them all away I think <laughs> That would be amazing. But just going back to the music on um, Orongo, it's it's all improvised, right? Or at least your part of it. I, I see no, it that, is. It is all yeah. improvised. Yeah, totally. And what was interesting about Orongo, I mean, this is, um, I don't want to go too much into detail of this, but um, it was a collaboration between Rob and I. And, uh, you know, we'd both been keen to have a, have a, have a uh, you know, a corero together uh, with our instruments. And um, we... We got a mutual friend, Darren Harkness, to record us in his little studio, and we just spent half half a day, I suppose, just making recordings. But then, you know, two years later, <laughs> the, <laughs> the album emerges. Um, but in the meanwhile, we we got the uh, our mix mastered by Colleen Brennan, who's a, a documentary um, audio audio recordist and um, sound engineer, um, and. Production was produced through Rattle, which Steve Garden. So yeah. Steve, when he when he was listening to the original material, um, he, off his own bat, uh, decided to 
create an interpretive remix. So the beauty of this album is that there's two two CDs in here. There's one, the original, of Rob's and my performances, and um, mixed purely. And then there's Steve's interpretive remix, which is much more alien. It's kind of, you know, a bit more spacey and uh, Rob calls it the sci-fi, the sci-fi <laughs> version. <laughs> of course, and, yeah, yeah. And they're, and they're very complimentary. Um, we had a, last night we had a, a um, we had our debut launch at Audio Foundation of the of the album at um, at last yeah last evening. That was that's that in was, Auckland. Yeah, yeah, in Auckland. That was pretty cool. And um, Steve collaborated with John Kim, also an audio engineer, to make a five five channel live replay version of about ten or twelve minutes from the album. You know, and that, that was that was quite cool. It was very nice. Kind and of. I'm just remembering your relationship with Steve Gardner with Rattle Records who we, we play some amazing releases on. That's been going a long time. I remember it's I going think a long time. Yeah. You had for, for From Scratch release. Yes, an early, uh, one of the early From Scratch ones, uh, Songs for Heroes. Yeah. Yeah, that's still one of my, my favourite releases of that era, you know, really. It's um it was a, a, a complex piece with a lot of a lot of intricate vocal hocketing and um, what's a hocket? A hocket is where, where you you break up a rhythmic melodic language between or a phrasing between two or more players. So you you share the you share the you share the oh, yeah. kind of melodic line and the rhythmic parts between the three, and then they, when it all comes together, I mean the hocketing really is a is a medieval term. I. I this was something that happened quite instinctively uh, or intuitively, I should say, um, in the process of you know learning to compose stuff uh, for the group. Um, this is right way back in the early eighties, probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. Way back, and then I, I learned I learned to be able to put a name to it, which was a medieval style, actually, of the same thing. We we you break up a rhythmic melodic vocal line. It was a cappella style of singing, and then it became, you know, used also in, in small ensemble playing. Mm. But it's it's interesting because the hocketing concept is actually totally universal, and it seems like it's a it, it's in the instinct of the earth and people's um, ability to make music, particularly communally. Um, so when people produce music where there's no specific soloists, the 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 kind of the inclination is towards rhythmic sharing of all the parts, and this happens in African, Indonesian, uh, some Polynesian right. parts, you know, uh, of music, and uh, yeah, it's very. A lot of indigenous musics have it. Yeah. Well, I love how you call it the instinct is in the earth because that seems to describe a lot of your work, even you know, with your visual arts, with your drawing and everything. It's almost like you're drawing out. You know these rhythms, these kind of natural ways of of, of being. But look, can I pass through a yes. Friday night? Friday night in Wellington, you're, you're performing at the yeah. Pyramid Club yeah. um, with Rob, and then the next day you're performing at this Fortuna Chapel with a work dedicated to Jim Allen. I really yes. wanted just to ask you. I know it's a big question, but how much of Jim Allen's influence is in who you are as an artist today? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think Jim. Jim was quite a special mentor for me because he gave me the freedom to explore and play, if you like, you know, within a within a fairly open boundary of of what was then you know sculpture considered sculpture, but it was like a, an expanded definition of sculpture. Really, you could pretty much do anything. So um, I'd started my course at Elam 
painting, doing, you know, kind of the standard stuff, painting and printmaking and things. And then I broke my course to go to the UK for... Right. Was fair, was a, was a how, how, what year would this have been, Phil? Uh, sorry to take you. Sorry no, to right. remind you. No, no, 67, 68. Right. Uh, 68, I went to UK. Um, and it was through a family tragedy, actually. My father was killed and so forth. And then oh. my in a, in a car accident. And my mum wanted to travel back to visit her her ancestral home. Um, of course, the you know the big OE thing for me, um, my first trip overseas. So yeah. I accompanied my mum to England and then went off on my own bat for a year and a half, which was amazing because then I, I, I fell into this. I was uh, I was kind of a, a very keen young um, jazz player at that point, piano and um, doing art, visual art, but looking for a way to combine my interests and fell into the. Uh, experimental music course at Morley College with um, Cornelius Cardew and uh, he was the kind of the enfant terrible of British music at the time, you know, challenging all the all the kind of orthodoxy and the, all the uh, cons- conservative kind of values of con- classical music. And this is where the, the name From Scratch comes from, yes, right? Yes, it does, yeah. Yeah, the Scratch yeah. Orchestra? Scra- right? It was originally Scratch Orchestra, yeah. And so I was part of the foundation group for that in London and it was very influential and Jim was doing his one of his overseas um, sabbaticals. It was in London. This is a very a major sabbatical for Jim because he went to UK, Europe, um, America, and did a very extensive tour and and took in a hell of a lot of stuff. Um, mm. So he came back to New Zealand, you know, full of new ideas. Um, he was in London, we met up, and he said, you know, why don't you come back into sculpture and, you you know, you have pretty much free reign to do what you want. So I came back and started a scratch orchestra within the sculpture uh-huh. context, um, which was like a, a little kind of offshoot of the London group. I was still in contact with Cornelius and Michael Parsons and various others. Um, so I never actually really made any sculpture, <laughs> but I did a lot of performance, performative stuff, and it was within a context where the boundaries were expanding and Jim was just bringing in or letting in all the new media that was kind of on the on the palette, you know. So video, for example, I just took to video like a fish to water. That was kind of mm. such uh, an exciting new medium. Um, and it was the old porter pack days, you know, and it was <laughs> <laughs> things have changed. My God. Did you, so did, you, <laughs> did you study under him when you were first, before you yes, went I away did. in Europe? Yeah, so yeah. Was, was there a sense that he, his, his mind had been blown and things totally changed when he yes, came well, back? Yes. When he came back, um, he, Jim treated education, art education, like an art project. Mm. And in fact, he, he was really uh, instrumental in, produ- in, in sort of introducing a more collective way of working together. Well, this totally matched what I was doing, which was the Scratch Orchestra depended on other, other people coming in on the concepts. You know, they were, it was all pretty fluxus-oriented and um, fairly uh, a lot of improvisatory kind of input and, uh, you know, involved visual um, sort of... Th- Active, active components as well as sound making and and uh, you know kind of a lot of uh, introduction of found objects and found instruments and diddly boo you know it was kind of very mixed media, um, quite theatrical. Um, Jim himself was kind of promoting basically anything that students wanted to do, and he'd pull them in on on brainstorming sessions. 
Yeah. So in a way, the students had a, you know, they had a, they were able to catalyze their own futures and de- development of what they were they wanted to do, and that that was that was fairly. You know, it was quite radical. At the he time. almost was against teaching, wasn't he? I've, I've just been reading a series of interviews that you've done with Tony Green mm. for this book, The Skin of Years, which is yes. fascinating. Came out on Clouds a few years ago. That sort of really reveals his life story and philosophy. It does. And what, true. What I what I realised, of course, was that when he went over um, at, in '68. Uh, Sixty nine. He yes. was pretty much following like the student revolts in France, That's and then, right. uh, th- th- there were like sit-ins at the UK art schools. He was involved in the state. Mm. So I mean, it wasn't just the cultural scene; it was the whole political scene in terms of students at that time yes, questioning was, yeah. how they should be taught or how not to be taught. Yeah, yeah. So he was he was very, um, you know, very cognizant, really, of of a more open plan of. I mean, he'd come through a, a, a training system with Owen Richardson and Gordon Tovey, um, which was really allowing, you know, and, and, and encouraging students to be part of a creative process in their, in their mm. learning. So there were a lot of, a lot of field trips going out. To, you know, if you're doing history, you go out and you actually study the stuff outside and then bring it back into the classroom and you create drama and you create poetry and paintings and everything around it. I mean, it was... a it was very, uh, very organic way of teaching and um, very, inc- very empowering, if you like. You know, I, I find this kind of fascinating, Phil, because when we think of Elam School of Fine Arts and we think of the international kind of art world, we think of something that's very theory laden and you know in touch with art theory and history and everything. But you kind of realise with Jim that there was. You know, he was bringing a lot in, but you know, this this Gordon Tovey generation of going out there it was kind of like make art with what you've got available to you. Yes, it was, and and yeah, resourcefulness and being able to really be perceptive about what's around you, open up your your senses, your antennae to the outside world as well as your inner your inner being. You know, and and really examine and explore play you know he served and, in he served in the war in Egypt and Italy which is really interesting and had you know it was it was a young farmer in the wire wrapper yeah when, when you interviewed him about all of this did you learn did you find that there was a lot of stuff that happened to him really young that yes extremely influences? I mean that was amazing you know he went to war when he was what 19 or something <laughs> he was just a you know a young man and you know he he had a role you know he was seen his leadership was clearly, you know, clearly apparent, and um, he was right on the front line in casino and um, in charge, in charge of a, a unit, um, and you know he was right there, and, and saw a lot of death, saw a lot of, a lot of destruction, came through it pretty much unscathed, which is amazing, apart from you know some fairly deep emotional stuff, I think, and he hadn't really talked about this. In fact, he was very reticent to talk about it in in general terms. In fact, Jim wasn't a big talker in that right. respect. You know, he was very much a, a doer and a thinker. Um, he didn't spend a lot of time just idle chatting. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm speaking here to uh, Phil Dadson on RNZ Culture 101. We're talking about the legacy of uh, Jim Allen. I, I thought I loved that, that concept, the first contemporary artist that Winston Kuno had for him. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he was certainly one of the first that came back uh, laden with ideas. I mean, others did. 
Um, mm. You know, Pat Hanley, Hoteri, mm. uh, McCann. But Jim embraced uh, new technology and new ideas. And uh, in a sense, he was the sort of source of what became Intermedia in, 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 at Elam. Um, things have changed a lot. Sadly. Yeah, I mean, I, would, I think personally, I, I mean, I, I don't want to get yeah. too much. Into no, but the I politics, would like to ask you about that because when I was at university, you were head of intermedia at uh, at Elam School of Fine Arts, and yep. there were great people like Lisa Rayhan and a whole lot of other this generation of artists coming through. Um, mm. This term intermedia, um, you know, you were kind of uh, <laughs> that was time based, time based arts really. It had yeah. a focus on the on the you know the impermanent and the the time based sort of notion of. So it was included video, film, sound, performance. Doesn't exist um, anymore, though, does it? Well, really, the term intermedia. No, sadly. Um, I mean, when I I left fairly, I retired fairly early because of the changes, the neoliberal changes that were happening within the university, which were, to me, very distasteful at the time. What's it, what sort of changes? Well, it there was big interference from. I mean, it was it was management became a a, a, a priority. Um, pruning, um, you know, pruning budgets, pruning, pruning staff yeah. um, in order to kind of, you know, make the business more effective. So, you know, this, the university has become a business and mm. um, the whole atmosphere of the, the collegiality, everything started to change. It all just happened mm. very, it just snuck in, you know, it was kind of quite insidious. Mm. It's it sort of from about 1986 onwards. Um, I left in 2000 um, and was personally very pleased to leave when I did at the time because it, the, just the, the, the academic uh, atmosphere wasn't as collegial, it wasn't as um, open in terms of research, there was a lot more administrative responsibility, much more accountability and reporting on each other and all that sort of stuff which was unpleasant. Um, yeah. So anyhow, I mean that's the that's a bit of politics, but um, things have changed quite radically. Um, and it, as you say, things did become very theory focused and contemporary theory focused. And uh, to my opinion, uh, to a point of you know constipating uh, a lot of art production that could have been much more, I don't know, sort of mm. loose and playful. You know, right. Um, then they got rid of the library. I mean, that was re- anyhow. We're just let's not go there. Yeah, <laughs> <That's another story. laughs> no. There in 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 the, in the book that's in the years. There's there's uh, yeah, there's the talk about the building up of that library actually, which is kind oh, of that was one of the most important libraries in Australasia for uh, visual arts. I mean, it's a so where are all those bo- well, where are all those they're, books they're now? now? Sorry, we are going there, aren't we? Well, they're subsumed <laughs> within the or, within Auckland University Library. Yeah. Yep. yeah, and so people have to make pretty much appointments to go and dig out books that they might need. I mean, I think it's all accessible, but nowhere near as accessible as it was, you know, so Mm. I don't know how much it's used. And also the art history department used to be much more integrated in, so people knew their history better, and I don't think that's that's as, uh, yeah... Yeah, common today. Well, well back, back briefly to the Jim Allen story. He yeah, went yeah. off. To, he went off to Sydney, and he sounded like he blew arts education out of the water there a little bit by um, mm. providing this kind of supportive environment for for students to do what they like. But then he came back, and he was still performing 
um, you know, went into his nineties. Yes, he you know, was. Yeah. Poetry for chainsaws with, yes. with chainsaws. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, he, a lot yeah. of that work that became reperformances of earlier work in a way. Mm. But he still had the, um, yeah, he had the energy and the and the, the you know the kind of I don't know the. He he had an amazing. Uh, Resource and 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 uh, f- ferment for just for creativity, you know. He yeah. right up to the end, um, you know. He still had ideas. Like at his at his one hundredth birthday, um, we had a function which was uh, which was a lot of fun. It was very quite small, you know, very family <laughs> and friends kind of oriented. Everyone party hats that Ruth, his daughter Ruth, had made. And he asked me to do a little performance with the Songstones, actually, because he, he was intrigued by these. And we set up a, you know, I set up a, a little bowl of water on a little round table I found in the space. And um, Jim was there in his wheelchair and a uh, motorized wheelchair at the time. <laughs> and um, it had just, following a, um, a, one of the speeches, I came in from one side and, you know, playing these things and. Jim spun around in his chair to kind of get a better look and splotted this bowl of water, just went everywhere all over the floor, you know. Next minute there's people <laughs> in with mops and the whole thing was just completely taken over by Jim's action, you know. So <laughs> it was a very hard act to follow. <laughs> so um, James Charlton, who was uh, had been a great support to Jim's also in his latter years um, and has actually written an essay about Jim's early work that's coming out soon. Um, he he and he, he thought, you know, he got together with Jim and they thought, oh, it'd be quite good to do a, a, a performance called Kick the Bucket. <laughs> <laughs> so we got together and talked about it. Well, it didn't actually come together because we thought actually it was a little bit too obvious for one thing and maybe a little too, uh, a little too you know, pointed about Jim's... <laughs> <laughs> kind of impending demise. <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil, but, what are you going to? Oh, sorry, you're not no, but we did, we did do it. We did do a version oh, of it at at his, at his memorial. Yeah, <laughs> we did a, a, a performance just called Kick, which was was very nice. It was a nice tribute to Jim. What, yeah. what did you do? Well, Ruth, um, his daughter, um, dressed in in Jim's kind of standard uh, performing costume, which was you know white overalls or something, and uh, had her uh, had her sensory kind of um, uh, or mainly her eyes um, kind of you know bound and things, and her back her t- her uh, arms tied behind her back, and um, spun around somewhat, and we had in the middle of the space a big big bucket of water. And um, she was kind of let loose with a kind of a kick action. <laughs> and I was drumming in the background with it, a bass, big bass drum and stuff, you know, and we're kind of marching around the space. And um, meanwhile, this kind of, I think we had, did we have a chainsaw chattering? I'm just not sure now. I've forgotten whether we had a chainsaw or not. <laughs> but she ended up doing a, a reading of Howl. Um, and the Allen Ginsberg. Yeah, yeah, which was a classic one that uh, Jim <laughs> read when he did the um, um, piece for chainsaws, three chainsaws. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you for joining us, Phil, today. So um, we've got the Pyramid Club on Friday uh, the 10th, I believe it is, of November yep. with Rob Thorne and then at the Fortuna Chapel with a few other artists uh, remembering um, uh, the work of Jim Allen. Thank uh, you so much for joining you. us. Thank you, and Fortuna is such a such an amazingly 
uh, it's it's a glorious space to to be in because of the the atmosphere, the light. 